Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Now, I used to watch for the commercials, but um, that's even even that even that pastime has sort of passed. Well, now they're all on the internet. Yeah, well, that's right. You can see them, and the the levels of creativity are to be argued these days. I host a show in Australia, a show that's all about advertising. It's like a, I mean, it's very hard to explain to Americans this show because, as I found out when we were pitching it in America, that. Uh, the concept itself is quite hard for Americans to understand. But imagine if it was like um, somewhere between John Oliver's show and a movie review show that was about advertising. So we like Wait, talk which, about. Which you may have noticed to... that there are a lot of things that Americans don't understand. <laughs> yeah. I have to turn on a light. I, I, I'm surprised to see. Yeah, you're very, uh, you're ominous. My background is so boring. Which, which podcast is that? No, it's a TV show. So I do this TV show. Oh, oh, okay. It makes uh, me feel like I'm in the same world as you guys. We've been doing it for like 12 years. We're about to go into our 13th year of doing the show. And it's like, it's a very successful Australian show, but it only really exists in Australia. And uh, the reason is that we have like a public broadcaster where you can actually go on and, you know, being being spirited about advertising. Whereas like when you're pitching that to Americans and you're like, so hang on, you're literally going to, like dissect the people who might sponsor the program that we're putting out there. No, I don't think that is a concept we can get behind. No, <laughs> no, we, we live for advertising. Yeah. <laughs> we grew up no, on it. It's, it's our avatar. If I seem down today, I really am. I'm, I'm, God, just one of my, I'm a lifetime Bruce Springsteen fan. And uh, uh, he has been somebody who, you know, in the eighties, he was offered $20 million by GM for born in the USA to use it in an ad. And he turned it down. And I believe the same week, turned around and gave the song for free to Luther Campbell to uh, turn into a rap that he could use to raise money for his legal defense fund. And he's always resisted. He's the last man standing and he's got a Jeep Super Bowl ad today. And I want to kill myself. <laughs> Feet of clay. We were disappointed in Australia. This was the only disappointing thing about the uh, election result in America because Bruce Springsteen had proclaimed that if Trump won the election, he was going to move to Australia. And as Did a country, we were all behind this as an idea. So he loves it. Down feelings. Uh, he's done. He's done some of his best shows ever down there for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, and it's not really an ad for Jeep. It's just him talking about America coming together with the Jeep logo, but yeah, but you think he's sold you know, out, don't you? Uh, <laughs> it's, 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 so. And then I found, I didn't realize Neil Young had already done an ad for Amazon, Amazon's music. So he, he, and he actually wrote a song about how we'd never do commercials. So, Listen, uh, you know, these people get to a certain age, they need money. They don't need to Bruce Springsteen doesn't need money. <laughs> you never know. Who knows what? Who knows uh, what expenses he overheads? Has. I mean, the E Street Band are a big band, and I'm yeah, sure he pays them all well. If all got yeah, alimony, yeah. <laughs> what would you? What would you do it at? Joe, have you? Did you ever sneak off to Japan and do any uh, commercial? Uh, no, I was never asked. Luckily. Oh, okay. Because um, that was a thing for a while when all these big stars were. Yeah, well, I, I, I never got offered a Suntory ad. Uh, <laughs> but but then you know we knock it. But then if they didn't do that, we'd never have. You ever seen that Charles Bronson uh, uh, Mandem commercial? Either of you? Yeah, 
I have. Uh, so early on in the days of our TV show, one of the things we explored quite a lot was that idea of, you know, American actors going to other countries and Sneaking. making these oh, advertisements. Okay. So, <laughs> Arnold, Arnold rich, was very big at that. Oh, sure. Big, very big. I mean, hard to discern what he was saying at the best of times in America <laughs> for a period of his life. So not a huge transition. I just, have you seen Mandem, Joe? You must have seen that ad. I have seen that ad. Yeah. Charles Bronson just pouring gallons of aftershave lotion on himself <laughs> and then going to bed, strangely. I, I, it's, uh, Isn't that what you do after you put your aftershave? <laughs> he goes out after you a great shave. Time. You have a little shave at night. You yeah. Lather it on. <laughs> get into bed. Go to bed. Because you got to, yeah, nothing smells better than Mandem at night. <laughs> <laughs> This is The Movies That Made Me, with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. Uh, Will, Will, thank you. Thank you so much man, for doing this. What, what time you're is it finally been? getting around to introducing him, Amy. Oh yeah, I, I, well we'll we'll do that in a minute. Uh, you're, what time is it there? No, it's midday here, so it's absolutely okay. fine. It's midday, it's midday on a Monday, uh, and I've already podcasted today, so I'm warmed up. I'm ready to go. Well, of course you have. You've got our our, our our Will Will Anderson. Our guest is a. Uh, I don't even. It's like if I start with one, it's you're. Can I start with comedian? You're a comedian. I'm you're a comedian. Like, I'm a I'm a stand up comedian person. You're, almost, you're yes. a TV personality in, in Australia. You have how many TV shows do you have in Australia? This is news. I, I knew about the. But right now, podcast. right now he's a sitting down comedian. I mean, he's yeah, got. I he's am got, a sitting down comedian. <laughs> in fact, I have bad hips, Joe. To be honest, most of the time <laughs> I prefer to be a sitting down comedian. But Mark Maron made that his bit, and apparently, right. when anybody else sits down now, you're just ripping off Mark Maron. Well, you know and what? If you, and if, you're, and if you come out, if if you come out on crutches, they don't laugh. <laughs> uh, uh, so no, I yeah. So I have four podcasts in this, like well, yes. four podcasts available worldwide. Um, uh, if people go to tofop.com, t-o-f-o-p.com, they can find all those podcasts. And yes, I have a, a TV long-running TV series in Australia called Gruen, which is about advertising and marketing and uh, dissecting advertising and marketing. And uh, we're about to go into our thirteenth year of that. And I actually. It was one of those people in lockdown where people decided you should do something during your lockdown period, even though we had a much reduced lockdown period in Australia than you guys have experienced over there. But I did develop and sell a new TV show during that time. So uh, this year there'll be something new that I came up with during the COVID time. And what's amazing, if I didn't listen to your podcast, I'd have to wonder if you have a personal life. I know you do, but it's, I still don't get how you, you've got four podcasts, a TV show. Now a new TV show. You're sitting down with us to talk about movies. Like, <laughs> but Josh, this is the new world. All those yeah. things that you've just described all yeah. happened in the same place. You are looking at the place <laughs> where the TV show was conceived. You're looking at the place where the podcasts are done. Like I have been in isolation, you know, basically isolation. We live in the country anyway, so we're socially isolated right. to a certain extent anyway. <laughs> and I have been in isolation with my partner for, well, you know, more time than we probably spent in the 20 years of our relationship of us spending time in the same house. She wants me to start two more podcasts. Anytime <laughs> that I just go, I'm going down to the office. <laughs> I was literally telling her a story the other night and she said, you can keep talking, but I'm going to stop listening. <laughs> <laughs> 
God. Uh, uh, that's insane. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 well, I'm, I'm still impressed. That's still a lot of work. Um, uh, but you're not doing the TV shows there. No. So we did, well, we did. So last year we managed to do an entire season of our show, but we did it without an audience for the first time uh -huh. ever. Cause normally we film it in front of a studio audience of about 250 people, but we did a COVID safe version of the show, extended our desks. So everybody was sitting the right amount apart and managed to, you know, pull off a 10 week season of our show in a COVID safe way. So that was pretty exciting. And now in Australia, to be honest, you know, we're pretty on top of COVID because, you know, we, our government listened to scientists and then we listened to our government and it seemed to work quite well for us. Also, we're on an island. And for the last 10 years, you know, if you're someone in Australia, you, Joe, this is the thing, our refugee policy, not particularly great. We've got our own version of a wall, which is a giant moat around our country. And in our country, the big thing is instead of build a wall, it's stop the boats. And of course, if you're a bit progressive in your politics for the last 10 years, you've been ashamed of our government trying to shut the borders. And then the minute COVID happened, 99% of Australians are like, shut the borders, never open them up again, build a wall around the country, no one else is ever coming in. But didn't you find that when you, when you, when you started to do your show without an audience, that it changed the show? Oh, you know, they, they, they talk about the idea of time being relative. And mm. the example that I always used to say about the relativity of time is you've got to go and see the White Stripes in concert because three minutes when Jack White is singing compared to three white minutes when Meg White is singing are very different periods of time. <laughs> it's, it's when Slash does his solo at the uh, Bon Jovi concert. You're just like, I've got time to go to the toilet and get a drink. Everything's going to be fine <laughs> at this point. And it's very much the same doing a comedy monologue without a studio audience. Uh, I remember uh -huh. being about 30 seconds into my first three minute monologue and feeling like there is a lot of this to go. <laughs> <laughs> what is, what is, we shouldn't be talking about this stuff, but what, what, what is worse for that dying with a live audience or, or no audience at all, which, which, which feels longer? Oh, I mean, okay. That's a very good question. Actually, Josh, I like that. Now I'm going to say, um, dying with a live audience because Time slows down for everybody in that situation. <laughs> Time's only slowing for me for you. when there's no audience there. But and if there's no audience, room, if there's no audience, how can you tell that you're dying? Uh, yes. Well, you can't. You just assume that you are. You just you exactly. Saying, <laughs> you have well, I've done this for 25 years. And the one thing that you know is that when there is silence, it is not working. You know, you have your internal studio mm -hmm. testing program. Like when a movie goes to testing in the first time and you're seeing where the laugh beats are as a stand-up comedian you're constantly doing that on stage as you work right. out your set as you work out your show you are in a process of using the audience's reaction or lack of reaction to shape the very art that you're making in the first place and the minute that you take the audience out of that like you're surfing without an ocean you're just a dickhead <laughs> on yeah. a piece of sand on a skateboard <laughs> just like doing some ollies and like that that's not actually what it is <laughs> Uh, I, I can't imagine. I, I've been really interested. So there's some people who, um, weirdly, I think John Oliver got funnier without an audience, <laughs> which I, I don't understand. I, I enjoy his monologues more, but there's a lot of people doing them that it, it, it kind of hurts. Um, but uh, we're not here to talk about you. <laughs> we don't talk about Why do we even we have him here? We don't, we don't want to talk about our guest <laughs> work. We don't care. We don't care about their work ever. Although I got to say, I think I've, I think I've blown this before, but uh, and I'm not going to ask you to do it, and I'm going to ruin it for our listeners. But you, you told this joke years ago, so it's all right. But you you had a bit about a uh, an encounter with Matt Damon 
and a story that you would tell over and over to everybody for years uh, that I loved so much because the payoff. Can I ruin it? Yeah, absolutely. It's on my Our Millennium show. People can oh, find that somewhere, and they can. The, it's a fifteen-minute bit, and the point oh, is, gonna, it has just, so much detail in this bit. I just it's Josh, to Josh is going to do what he likes to do, which is to cut out the entire bit and just go to the punchline. No, yeah. it's a great bit. Now I feel bad. I should <laughs> ruin, ruin the end of the crying game for people too. While you're here. <laughs> By the way, I remember seeing the crying game. I won't ruin the end of the bit. It's too good. It's, uh, I feel good. But it just it speaks to a universal truth that I've never heard somebody else talk about before, especially in comedy. And it's very, very funny. And, no, and, the, the premise of the whole piece, the, the reveal of the whole piece is that the thing never happened. That it happened to my girlfriend and she told me the story. And over the years of me telling this story, I had completely Indiana Jones style taken one thing off and replaced it with something that weighed exactly the same. And I believed with all my heart and intention yes. that this story had happened to me to the point where I told <laughs> it to my girlfriend who revealed to me that it had never happened to me. And of course, it started as a five minute story, but because the moment I had the, uh, the revelation that the big payoff of this bit was that none of it happened, I realized that I had a blank slate for every layer of detail I could add into the story. Yes. So I really then went into this fictional story and people would come up to me after this show, even after the reveal of the idea that you can't, I'm an unreliable narrator, you can't trust what I'm saying. They'd, they'd still go, oh yeah, but that bit of it was true, right? And that bit was true. And I'm like, no, none of it was true. The whole bit at the end is, it's a classic, I woke up and it was all a dream story, basically. It's, it's an amazing, yeah, and it does make you go back and look at your own life. And uh, not to get, I, I, I had a story I've been telling for years that probably for the last 20 years, I've become convinced I, I had made up. And uh, or late last year, I actually had to confirm that it had actually happened. I saw a video and I was, I was so bowled over by the fact that uh, all those years of guilt telling this great story that I probably made up turned out not to have been made up. It, uh, well, there is actually a link to today's show because one of uh, my movies. Is not um, real? I have a story about that, that the story I'm going to tell you, and then I'll actually reveal the truth of the story, seeing that we've got onto this. The two are almost the same, but they're not entirely the same. In fact, do you want to jump in? Do you want me to? Sure, yeah, let's jump in, because uh, Will, Will was, I, I love this, because sometimes you, know, you feel a little guilty. It's like he's Australian. You don't want to go, hey, Will, could you tell us about your favorite Australian films? Um, but that's what he volunteered. Uh, so I'm, I'm very psyched, because some of these films, I assume, are ones that we all know and love, and others are going to be like... Uh, uh, the Hundred Horsemen. Yeah, Barry Jenkins does his laundry or something. That uh, <laughs> You know what? There's a few movies in the 70s that do very much have titles like Barry Jenkins <laughs> yes. does his laundry. <laughs> For some reason, I have a DVD of all these. I think it came with the Ozploitation movie, which is a great doc, and the DVD came with like 100 trailers for uh, Australian movies. And it's it's an amazing thing to watch back to back because yeah every now and then you're like oh hey look it's Mad Max and then yeah we're back to Barry Jenkins and it's surreal because so, well, they're all speaking English it's like it's like what a I universe what I thought I might try to do then is not like these aren't the by any way the best ten Australian movies of all time these no, are very no. much just you know movies that made me that I have some sort of connection to that I thought there's going to be some of them that people will know or they might know the director or they might know the actor, but they don't know about this movie because it came out of Australia. And then there's a couple of cultural icons in there as well that I just thought it would be fun for us to talk about. But well, Australian yeah. movies didn't get a lot of distribution uh, in America uh, until 
the seventies really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were, there were every so often there was a Chips Rafferty movie that would come out that would be like walk into hell, you know, which would be some sort of exploited uh, as if it was like a jungle drama. But for the most part, um, they really didn't make it here until the, uh, the Peter Weir era. Walkabout. The walkabout era. uh, When all of a sudden it was, it was, it became, dare I say, hip um, to be into Australian movies. And I remember when I went to the first Avoriaz Film Festival in um, 1980, uh, I was very taken with a movie called Chain Reaction, which uh, I thought was would have been a big hit if it had been released in America, but it never was. Uh, and uh, and so I, it it really it really was kind of dependent on what the cultural impact was of Mad Max and and you know George Miller and uh, that kind of stuff to sort of open up the gates to say well you know these movies you know even even Wake and Fright which is a you know very uh, fascinating and probably the the most damning portrait of a of a, a society that I've seen ever um, did come out in America with with cuts on, under the title Outback and uh, but then you know more recently Marty Scorsese has championed it and now it's on a Criterion disc or whatever uh, and it's it's a, it's a it's a great movie it's very tough though. There's, well, there's a, a theme through a lot of the films, even the ones that I've chosen, and I've chosen some comedies and stuff that perhaps people won't have heard of, but um, of the, there is a harshness to essential characters in Australian films. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I would say. And often like a danger, like a sense of adventure, but like definitely very male-driven, like a lot of our cultural touchstones, Australia, very white <laughs> and very, um, you know, uh, but yeah, like it's a real sense of danger. So obviously you mentioned Mad Max. That's where I was going to start with Mad Max Fury Road because oh. I think I just thought that we would start, like I, it's by far and away the best. My world is fire and blood. Everything is dependent on oil. You're killing for gasoline. The world is almost out of water. 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 Now there's the water wars. Here they come again. Everybody's gone out of their mind. You can have your arguments about the cultural impact of the other films, but it's one of the greatest films ever made. And it was made by a grandpa who lives down the road from me. Like a guy <laughs> whose, you know, phone number I have in my phone right now. Like the dude that I run into when I'm walking my dogs down the shop made this thing that just from its opening scenes, the colour grading, there's this choice yeah. with the colour grading at the start of this film that like I've lived around sand. I've seen sand. Sand does not look like what sand looks like in that movie. Sand yes. looks like the ocean or like, you know, like Willy Wonka's chocolate river or something. It looks like something that is incredibly harsh, but also incredibly beautiful and has waves and storms and becomes this entire character of its own. He takes something that is normally just so gray and immediately turns it up into this thing that in my memory, that's what sand looks like now. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you, you think of the future, you think of this post-apocalyptic future and you imagine the sand being golden like that. And from that moment, this entire film just captivated me. I, th- I thought it was the greatest achievement ever on a, of an Australian on film. I, I love that it was filled with Australian actors, you know, like for Australians, you watch this big Hollywood movie, this $150 movie or whatever it was, you know, most Australian films, a lot of ones, I'm going to talk about today probably their combined budgets would have been 150 million dollars but for somebody to have that sort of money to spend and then to spend it in the way that he did the practical effects of the movie creating this entire world where i think one of the initial yeah criticisms of this film was that there was no storytelling in it like the story wasn't that good which is like the more you watch it the more you just like understand how ridiculous that is it's an incredible story but it doesn't try to be an overcomplicated story it tells you a reasonably simple story so that, that it can then give every single moment every single shot every single bit of dialogue in that movie can be used to actually mean something there's nothing in it that doesn't need to be there and yeah. it's rare that you can say of something that is that long and that big and that spectacular that they just didn't put anything in there that didn't need to be there you know, I was uh, approached in, um, what year was it? 79? Uh, 80? Can't remember. The first Mad Max? The first Mad Max, yeah. Yeah, it was 79. Uh, I was approached by uh, Orion Pictures, who uh, there were a lot of executives left over from, from American International, and they uh, said, well, you know, uh, would you look at this movie and tell us how we can fix it? Oh. And, and, I, and I, I watched the movie, and I said, well, what are you talking about? You know, they, they did, another company did that with Time Bandits as well. So, you know, sometimes they just don't know anything. I can say frequently they don't know anything. Um, so the idea was, well, you know, we, we have to make this make sense. And they said, well, well, it doesn't make sense. And they said, well, we can't understand anything they say. Oh, yeah. Uh, and when the picture was released in America, uh, it was dubbed uh, into, quote, English yeah. as opposed to Australian. and. Um, it, it didn't do all that well, but it did, it made enough of an incursion that when, when George made uh, Mad Max 2, Warner Brothers picked it up and it became far more successful than Mad Max 1. And in fact, I don't think that probably many of the people who watch the Mad Max movies are quite aware yeah. of what a huge impact the first one had because on this side of the pond, uh, it was way outshone by the somewhat more expensive and elaborate um you know uh, mad max 2 which was rechristened road warrior because they assumed that nobody had ever seen mad max which was true yeah it's you speak about the idea of you know making it more accessible for people i feel that george went on a journey with that with those movies right the second one really was a more accessible version of the first one and then thunderdome became probably too accessible like leaned too much into (laughs) You know, that accessibility Yeah, but he sure, he sure made up with it. He sure made up for it in the last one. Oh, yeah. Didn't he? And that, but the last one still is part of that story. And it's probably the only film on this entire list where you can actually say it has a female lead. I mean, the truth of it is that it is, you know, Furiosa's yeah. movie. And, and, you know, George makes that very clear. It's clear that, you know, Max is not the, you know, main or integral character, you know, to the point where he walks away from the story at the end. He is just passing through this bigger story that is being told. And there is yeah. Yeah, something about his evolution 
as a filmmaker, but also his evolution, you know, as a storyteller and what he wanted to tell with that story. But then just as a practical film, like the way that the details of that film, like I think we've seen it more in this uh, time of lockdown than any other. There are certain people who become very creative. There are people who are doing Zoom comedy shows and finding out ways to do, you know, things in their backyard or innovate and pivot in a new and different way. And they'll do anything to have a gig. They just need to perform. And that moment where Iota is on the front of that war machine with that bank of amps playing like the guitar, yes. the first time you see this, <laughs> you're like, this is the most ridiculous thing of all time. And then, of course, you're like, no, 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 no. This is a dude who in this society found a way to survive. Yeah. This is the guy who's like, you know what? I can't be a war boy, but I bet the war boys need a podcast about what it's like to be a war boy. <laughs> and there's this one guy who's like, well, I play guitar very well. I reckon they'll still need to be entertained when they're out there on the road. Yeah, but that's like, that's like kids who get picked on in high school who become funny. And they become <laughs> funny because they know that if they make them laugh, they won't pick on them. So you, right. you, have to, you have to figure out what your strength is, and then you have to go with it because it's a survival tactic. But all, all those movies do a, uh, actually, I can't, I cannot remember Thunderdome. I've only seen that one, I think, once in theaters, and I try not to think about it too much. I should go back. But no, you should. There's a lot they, of good stuff in there. But it's all, not all perfect, but there is a lot of ingredients in there that I think. Oh, there, yeah, are, too, there are too many right. ingredients. That's the problem. Yeah. I, I think the, um, one of the things I love about all of those is he, he creates, and you, you can tell that, that, Everything is fully fleshed out in his mind, who these people are, where they come from, how the world has gotten this place. And then he severs all the connective tissue and just lets the film function on its own logic so that, you know, even though as strange as the police force is in the first film, you know, you get this sense of a society that's starting to fall apart and these characters are still sort of clinging to their jobs in a way that it all seems very organic and it all is in a way that, you know, if it were an American studio film, first note would be, you know, uh, why are you, can't, can't they be normal cops? And you have to explain this. And who's that guy with a guitar on top of the truck? And he needs a name and we need to know his story. And someone needs to explain him. And it just. Yeah. There's no five years later. Yeah. There's, no. There's, you know, no. there's no sort of, this is how much time has passed. You've got to work it out. I can't remember word for word what the opening piece of dialogue from the film is, but it's very much Max narrating. And he covers the entire backstory of the first two movies in like a sentence. Yeah. It's a really economical, beautiful, yeah. here's your recap. That was your recap. That was your previously previously on Seinfeld. You know, that, that's, mm -hmm. that's what you just saw there. It was two well, words. I, I, I know George because we worked together on the Twilight Zone movie and uh, he was, um, I, I thought, a, a terrific filmmaker and a, and a really a wonderful guy. He's a medical doctor uh, in addition. On his, <laughs> it's a sideline side for him. Um, and when... Uh, when he did, uh, when he, we both made pictures at Warner Brothers that made money. And so they offered him The Witches of Eastwick. And uh, then they, they, were, they did what all studios do, which is they, they hired him for his talent and then they would uh, try to save him from himself, which right. is a phrase I've heard very often, uh, and tell him what to do and... Uh, they they switched the casting on him like about eight times while he was working on the picture. There's a no no she can't play that she can't play it, and um, the experience was so unpleasant for him that even though he had a big future in American films, he just said fuck this, <laughs> I'm going back to Australia, where I'm you know where I, I I'm I'm a known quantity and I have my own company 
with Byron Kennedy, who passed away, uh, and uh, and and he, he became a force in the international film community by not staying in America, which I think was a really smart decision. Yeah. He, well, he's inspirational in that way. Like, so as an Australian, I mean, I joked before about the fact that he lives down the road from where I live, but. I can't help but be inspired by that every time I see him. Not just the fact that he's making, you know, probably his greatest work, you know, when he was 70 or something, right. but the idea that he has chosen to do it from Australia. And as somebody who spent like a bunch of time working overseas, but, you know, by necessity, obviously at the moment, you know, can only be in Australia. It does inspire you about the possibilities of work you can make in one country that can be seen all over the world. But yeah, that movie was full of, like Australian icons, like, you know, the, the little, uh, the, one of the sons, the little guy in the wheelchair, you know, the futuristic sort of wheelchair. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, so Quentin Kennehan is like an Australian icon. To see, to see these people in these movies, oh, really? okay. like Megan Gale, who's the naked model up on the, you know, the Watch Out Tower is like a huge, like it was a huge Italian model. Like she's Australian, but like to the point where you went to Italy like you would have waiters stop you when they heard the Australian accent to say, like, you know, do you know Megan Gale? And there'd be part of you that'd be like, we're a country of 26 million people. We don't all know each other, but also going, well, I do actually know Megan Gale. She's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that big, you know, our industry. But so I think there was something special in this movie and something that made it still feel iconically Australian to an Australian audience. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine. And, 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 you know, can lay claim to be one of the greatest movies ever made easily. That's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm boggled by that film. Have you, have you ever, uh, have you ever watched the black and white version? Oh, yes. Yeah. I've watched every version of it and yeah. I've watched like, you know, it's the only thing that I did a little bit of rewatching for this conversation today. And that was really just as an excuse. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't, there was no, there, there wasn't anything that we would have talked about today that I wouldn't have been able to talk about from my previous viewings of it. I'll tell you about the first time I ever saw it though, because I think this adds to yeah. how exciting a moment it was. We went to um, Man's Chinese Theater. That's where I saw it. I was in LA and I went with a mutual oh. friend of ours, Dave Anthony. Okay. And Pat Oswald yes. and a, you know, a bunch of his friends. And we went, they just brought in whatever the new technology on the screen was. And right. it was just seen. It's amazing. There, it was yeah. such an overwhelming like moment, you know, as much as it was anything else. But I've watched it probably, I reckon, 20 times since at the very least. And yeah, yeah watching it again last night, I was just like, oh yeah, I'm going to sit down. I only watched bits and pieces last night, but like I was going, I'm going to sit down and watch the rest of this probably this week. Yeah. I'm well, you know, now I have to. Because I can, I can, I can hear the words "fury" or "road" and be all right, but but more than thirty seconds conversation about this film, I kind of have to go back and watch it again. There's just so much to it. Like I was watching it again last night, just looking at the details of the production design. You know, the War Boys, you know, accelerator pedals and how they all had individual designs and how they were all, you know, linked to the universe in some way. And you know, someone someone says playing with this children's toy that was back in this you know, the you know, previous version of the film and the intricacy of detail that is in no way necessary for you to enjoy or understand right. the story that they're telling, yeah. but is there in that world building. Like that's the thing I love about his world building is yeah. they actually build the world. Yeah. So they don't have to spend any time telling you what the world is that you're suddenly in. They're just like, you'll pick it up along the way. We're going to drive through it. 
we're not going to tell you exactly who yep. this tribe were or what their deal was. And this was probably an ocean, but we're not really going to explain that. You've got enough information about the world that we live in now that you can work out the rest of this yourself if yeah. you want to, but you don't really need to know. You don't need to know if Furiosa was previously one of a Morton Joe's brides. I, I probably watched the movie and I think she probably was. And she graduated out of that circumstance into like, you know, the role, she found another role in the society. She found her guitar on the front of one of the, you know, and she was like, this is better than the life I had. And then was sympathetic to that opportunity when it arose in the plot point. That's probably her motivation in my mind, but it doesn't need to be. And the right. movie never takes any time to, it suggests that, but it never yeah. tells you that that's why she's doing it. She never has a moment where she's like, I'm helping you guys because of this. And you don't get that. I don't think they ever explain. I think, well, at least when I watch the movie, I don't think Mad Max can hear very well anymore. He's constantly being shot around his head and everybody in the movie is missing some element of their senses. Like right. Morton Joe can't breathe, like Furiosa doesn't have an arm. As you go through the movie, you realise how many of them are missing one of their senses. It's never said in the movie, but they're constantly referencing. He's, he mumbles. Like people are like, that's Tom Hardy's performance, but is it because he can't hear properly? There's key moments of dialogue that he's not across because he did not hear them when people said them. I think, I think they wrote him as not hearing very well anymore but they never in the movie have a moment where they go right. you can't hear very well what was that i can't hear very well anymore but <laughs> that's what i loved about their world building is it's all yeah. there yeah. but they don't tell take any time to tell you that it's there yeah yeah that's great I, I you're right i hadn't i hadn't thought of that before i hadn't noticed it before but uh uh yeah well so yeah. we spent 30 minutes on on two movies so yeah, no, now we're, now we're just, on. <laughs> it's all downhill from here unless i don't know well barry jenkins does laundry is uh it's worth building yeah. up to. It'll be quicker. It's, <laughs> it's fine. Um, I, I'll tell you about a movie that this probably, people will think of another movie that I'm going to talk about as being the most iconically Australian movie. To international audiences, the most iconically Australian movie is Crocodile Dundee, of course. And I will definitely talk about that because you can't be an Australian or an Australian comedian who's worked overseas and, you know, seen people's like entire representation of what Australian comedy is be formed through the eyes of Paul Hogan and not need to talk about that, but there is a movie that if you ask Australians, and when this is asked, is, is probably most often named as Australia's most favourite movie. It is a perfect comedy movie for Australians. Do I think that it's a perfect comedy movie for international audiences? I don't know, because some of the humour is that it is so iconically Australian to the point where so many of the things that are said in this movie have become cultural catchphrases. Things that people of all age groups will just say. They are part of the Australian lexicon. It was uh, filmed in 11 days from con in like from the idea of coming up with it, the inception of the idea, they wrote it for two weeks, they filmed it for 11 days. To the final cut, it took them five weeks. It is a movie called The Castle. Uh, it was made in 1997 for $750,000. The Kerrigans were an ordinary family blessed with extraordinary gifts. Sophisticated palates. What do you call these things again? Rissoles. Chicken sponge cake. A priceless automobile collection. Could you move the Camera? I need to get the Tirana out so I can get to the Commodore. I'll have to get the keys to Cortina. I'm going to move that Camera. An appreciation of high culture. Dad reckons there's only one show better than Hey Hey It's Saturday. Mom, what's what's on? Okay, Tracy, this is it. The luggage in number two. Go! An innate sense of taste and style. 
This is going straight to the pool room. How do I look, Dad? They had this one channel, kickboxing, 24 hours a day. A love of unspoiled nature. How's the serenity? Not a sound. Finally, the most cherished gift of all, their house. Dad called it his castle. And this is my backyard. Is that the runway there? Well, I reckon we're the luckiest family in the world. Until one ordinary day, a knock on the front door changed everything. Compulsorily acquired. This is a compulsory acquisition. They're not going to take our place and we don't get a say in it. But that's why you'll be duly compensated. I don't want to be compensated. You can't buy what I've got. Now the Kerrigans must venture beyond their own backyard to face the biggest fight of their lives. If it's going to be lawyers, I'm going to hit them with the big artillery. And it was made by a group of Australian comedians called Working Dog, who are probably the most successful Australian comedy troupe. You know, if, if, like, and they've made a, a variety of shows. They've all gone to often done their own different things. There's no great example in America that I could point to, but Saturday Night Live will have to do. A bunch of people who've come through this thing, they all started kind of in sketch comedy, but they've all gone off and done, made amazing television shows. Um, but this is their masterpiece. It, it is an Australian movie called The Castle. Um, it, it is everybody in Australia will have seen this film. It, it's incredible. It's it's a low budget, perfectly scripted, perfectly performed movie. I'm, I'm looking it up. I don't think I've ever heard of this thing. Good lord! Um, and you're what you're saying? You're not sure if it translates. It's iconically Australian. It would be interesting to me to know if it does. Right. It, if you well, think that might be why it wasn't distributed. <laughs> if you think Australia is Mad Max, or if you think Australia is Crocodile Dundee. You, you need to see the castle because the castle is actually what Australia is. It is a perfect movie about suburban middle-class, working-class Australia. And it, it is just a simple, hilarious film. And it is historic in Hollywood movies because I believe it is Eric Banner's pretty much only comedic performance. Wow. And he was a comedian, right? So Eric Banner, if people might not know that, but was a very popular Australian comedian and um, until he made a movie that we're going to talk about. But um, this performance, he's not the lead in the castle. He is just the, the, the son-in-law obsessed with uh, martial arts and he plays this very hilariously broad, a, a, a role that you'd ordinarily see a Will Ferrell or somebody do in one of those movies and it is so hilarious. But the entire film, everybody in the movie is perfectly cast. It is an incredibly well-made movie and just shows what you can do with, you know, five weeks and money, less yeah. than a million dollars. Make something that is probably the most culturally significant Australian movie of all time. Wow, and I just checked, it is on Prime, so I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I've always wondered about, because I've never seen Eric Bana do anything remotely funny in a movie. And uh, yeah, I assume you're going to talk about the, I don't know what you're going to talk about, but I remember, you know, so surprising. It was like, oh, he's a comedian? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I, and did he just give up on it? Is, is comedy too hard? Is that the deal? What's the... Uh... <laughs> it turns out being a Hollywood movie superstar is harder than stand-up comedy. So I've got to readjust my priorities. Sometimes I feel bad that I'm not some big Hollywood movie star, but it turns out I'm doing something much more difficult. Open mic at the Armadale with Eric Banner. Yes, I think comedy is probably tougher than being a movie star. 
So Eric and I used to do shows together, you know, oh. when I was first starting. He was like the biggest comedian in Australia pretty much at the time. He was the huge star of a, a like a sketch comedy TV show. He had an iconic character called Poyter, who was a larger than life sort of idiot man, but was like, you know, one of those characters that people would, you know, do their own impressions of. Like, a, you know, a, a kind of had that Borat level of, you know, societal acceptance where everybody right. knew the quotes and everybody could do kind of the voice. Yeah. And and then he had a ill-fated Tonight Show that ran for six weeks because he wasn't really particularly good at that. And then he had a sketch show and his career kind of stalled. So he was the biggest thing in the country. And then he'd sort of had these two big shots at having a, you know, big TV shows and neither of them had really worked out. And there was this moment where I remember in the comedy community, there was a bit of, um, oh, poor Eric, because everybody loves Eric. You know, right. everyone's like, Oh, poor Eric. It did just like he was the biggest thing. And then it just all didn't really work out for him. And then he made a movie that is on this list uh, called Chopper. You probably read all the newspaper stories about me. And, and you've heard the, the, the word on the street about me. You're sick, Reed. You're insane. And you've got a picture in your head of what, what bloody Chopper Reed's like. And we're sitting here at this bar, all very nice and cosy. and. I'm a bit of a bloody letdown to you. Look, the average man on the street it doesn't worry about chopper eat. The average man on the street who likes me, he couldn't care less about me. What I do, he applauds. Oh, give me land, lots of land. And I, if people have not seen the movie Chopper, his oh. performance in this is it is based on a real life Australian criminal, a guy who was much a big, larger than life Australian character, Mark Chopper Reed. And Eric Banner plays him in a story about his life. And Mark Chopper Reed had the number one selling, you know, books, crime books in Australia, but number they were hugely uh, popular but beyond just the crime category. And he wrote these series of books and became a bit of a you know personality because Chopper's big thing was that when he was in prison, he only he went out, he only ever went after other crooks. So he was that sort of criminal that you could love a bit because, you know, he, he hadn't really gone after anyone who wasn't a criminal already. And uh, Eric Banner plays him in a movie about his life and it is one of the most transformative things you will ever see in your entire life. The movie's good. It's not great, I don't think. It's a good movie, but the performance is, oh, is like Academy one, yeah. Award, you know, style yeah. performance. It's amazing. I remember he came out, it was, I think, um, uh, Elmore Leonard wrote a just glowing, it wasn't really a review, just kind of an endorsement of it, I think, in the New York Times. And I remember just reading that and going, oh, shit, I got to see this. And yeah, it it, uh, it really did feel like a star is born. And then you see him in other movies, you know, to us who didn't know him at all. And then I see him in another film after that. And it's he didn't look anything like, you know, the degree of transformation to become Chopper is incredible. And then you see him, he's this sort of smoothly kind of matinee guidel looking fellow. And uh, um, yeah, I, God, that movie's incredible. He's just, he's just riveting. But yeah, I've always been fascinated by the comedian aspect because I, I never see a hint of that in any of his performances. Well, if you see The Castle, you yep. get to see him be. Yeah, no, I want to see it. Just for that alone. I would say to anybody who's curious about Eric Banner, if you're a fan of his serious acting, but you want to see how good a comedian he was, because he wasn't a bad comedian. He was a, you know, like the role is, you know, kind of Steve Martin-esque. It has, you know, incredible physical comedy and it just very, very funny. So, yeah, definitely check it out. Fantastic. All right. Do you want to awesome. move on to another film? 
Yeah, sure. Um, okay, well, uh, I mentioned Crocodile Dundee, so we probably should talk about Crocodile Dundee, right? He was raised in the land down under, where a man thinks on his feet, speaks with his fists, and lives by his wits. A legendary figure about to encounter a world more treacherous than any he has ever known. G'day. Big Dundee from Australia. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Just going down for a couple of days. Probably see you around. Bye. This your first trip to New York? First trip anywhere. Well, we might just have to give you one for free. <laughs> yeah. One what? How are you finding New York? A bit of a lunatic or something. That's why I love it, because I fit right in. G'day. Hello. Sorry. G'day. Well, if you can manage, Wal, I'd like to stay a while. Wouldn't have anything to do with a certain lady writer, would it? Paramount Pictures presents... Your pal, Senor Meek. Paul Hogan. Um, hey, my man, what's happening? Uh, where? As Crocodile Dundee. You got a light, buddy? Yeah, sure. Yeah. And your wallet. You've got a knife. <laughs> a knife? Tell me first, like as it, like you know, I want I want to know what you guys like remember about Crocodile Dundee, like what sort of cultural impact it had on America, Crocodile Dundee. Because as an Australian, I know that side of it, but what's the other side of it? Well, it was very popular uh, because it was sort of you know goofy and offbeat, uh, and obviously made his career, uh, and then led to you know sequels and stuff. Um, I, I can't admit personally to being a big fan of it uh, because it's uh, it's not bad. Savvy. It, it's savvy. it just didn't it just didn't register with me. Um, I'm kind of yeah. I mean, I remember he was a wasn't he? Uh, he, he was a commercial spokesman for. Did he do a lot of products over here? I, I sort of vaguely remember that you were aware of him and this persona. And the movie had this kind of before it, you know, when it was coming, it had this sort of veneer of like, you know, almost like they were making a movie about the Kool-Aid man or something, you know, where it just felt a little cynical. And then it turned out to be kind of a quote unquote real movie, as, as savvy as it was. I I don't think I saw it in theaters. I think I finally saw it on VHS. Um, but yeah, it was a huge phenomenon and it had everybody kind of, you know, walking around talking in terrible Australian accents for a while. And I know it it solidified our impression over here of a certain type of Australian male. Um, Shrimp on the barbie. Yeah, I mean, all that stuff sort of came out of that and and immediately went from um, obscurity to overused cliche, like, <laughs> you know, that's not a knife, this is a knife, all that 
Yeah, true. Yeah, but but for me, it was more of a comedic version of Wake and Fright. So uh, <laughs> I I didn't really New York being the small. Uh... Yeah, I didn't. I, well, also it's Coogan's Coogan's Bluff. I You're mean, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, it there there wasn't a lot of originality about it, except for the fact that he hailed from Australia and had and he was charming him all his Australian charm. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I think, I think I think that's absolutely accurate. Like it's not. Yeah. It revolutionary in any way and that's why i was super interested in your perspective because it was a cultural phenomenon like when you think of yeah. countries like australia we just had never like you know paul hogan was again the most popular comedian in the country at the time like he had had an iconic you know tv show he was as you said like the quintessential white, white australian male like he was a larrikin as we say in australia and his whole appeal was that he had been this guy who had you know, he'd been a builder. Like, you know, he was a, he was, he was, he worked on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. You know, this is the famous Paul Hogan origin story. You know, he was working on the Sydney Harbour Bridge and there was a TV show called New Faces and he hated it that the judges were mean to the acts. So he only went on the show to be mean to the judges. That was his whole shtick. And he walked off before he was judged. He said, I'm good. You know, I, I don't need you guys to judge me. And he became, nice. yeah, because this is back in the time when there's three TV networks. Right. Suddenly, Overnight, he's gone on one of the biggest shows in the country, completely deconstructed the format and become an overnight star to the point where he became this countercultural icon. And in Australia was the face of so much advertising. But what you're remembering is there was actually an Australian tourism advertisement like campaign all around Paul Hogan. Like it was, right. in fact, there was some money tied up in Crocodile Dundee as well. It was all about this idea of portraying Australia in this certain way. You know, it was going to be, it was kind of like a giant ad. And th those guys, like Strop, his partner, who'd been his comedic sidekick, but John Cornell, who ended up being his sort of, you know, producer and business manager and all these sort of things. They were commercial guys. You know, they had these associations with products. They, this movie really was this $7 million Australian movie with a bit of government funding and a bit of, you know, advertising money in it that ended up making $330 million worldwide. And so for Australians, it was the most successful, you know, ad for Australia that had ever been run anywhere. Suddenly the whole world had this idea about what Australia was. And Paul Hogan wasn't Paul Hogan. Paul Hogan was us. He was our entire country out on the world stage. I remember when he walked out as a kid watching Paul Hogan like from the Paul Hogan show, you know, walk out at the Oscars to open the Oscars, you know, and he's doing this incredible, I actually rewatched it the other night. It's not that incredible, but I remember it being really incredible at the time because his whole attitude was like, you know, there's too many people who say, I don't deserve this. If you honestly feel like you don't deserve it, give us away from the chair. And like, he's, he's kind of, again, dismantling the, the pomposity of what the Oscars are about. And as Australians, that was so much tied to, our cultural identity at the time we were like this little tiny country that was trying to say we're here and we can do stuff and you know we you know, don't give a shit about the way you do it we're going to come in and do it our way and so as a cultural phenomenon in australia it was incredibly powerful but also has been incredibly limiting there mm. is so much of what you see since that has come and gone because it, it wasn't paul hogan it wasn't crocodile dundee so it's i spoke to john cleese once about um you know, uh, his comedy career, and he was talking about writing Faulty Towers. And I said, isn't that amazing? The first thing he ever wrote, and it's like one of the most iconic comedy series of all time. And he goes, 
no, it's not that great because then everything you write after that, people just compare to that thing that you came up with. And <laughs> I think that, you know, I, I, I think Paul Hogan, yeah, the cultural imprint of Paul Hogan on Australia is probably felt, like I think he is probably, apart from Rupert Murdoch in different ways, Paul Hogan would be the, the most culturally significant Australian of all time. And I, I know that's a big thing to say, but it's for us it was us announcing ourselves to the world and such a limited version of us, yeah. like the worst version of us, you know, the kind of <laughs> well, offer Australian male that we were at the end of, that was what we made most beloved. That's because I don't know why. I think I sort of always assumed that the one thing you did not want to mention if you were in Australia, and especially if you were American, is you love Paul Hogan, that that would probably get you killed. But I, I kind of love that, that that you all embraced it because it seems like something. Yeah, that, I mean, not now. Like, I mean, there's, <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I, there's a, you know, they're, they're really, but at the time, yeah. No, sure, sure. Dominant. I think we went on a school trip. I think that's how culturally... Yeah, in movie. I really think like for like for school, they took us to see Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> That's fantastic. Now I assume we have Paul Hogan to thank too, just the success of that. Because what is it? Two years later, uh, we get Yahoo Serious over here, and um, I assume that was an attempt to replicate the uh, the phenomenon. That it's interesting because I, Yahoo Serious had a bigger cultural impact overseas than in Australia. I even know way back. Like, I often get asked about Yahoo Serious. <laughs> the most famous thing. So Yahoo Serious had a series of movies. Yeah. His first one was uh, the one that you guys probably saw, young, which was Reckless Kelly. Right. Oh, Young Einstein, young of Einstein. course. No, his yeah, first yeah. one was Young Einstein. And by the way, I just um, want to make it clear. I don't think any of us saw it. That's the thing. <laughs> Well, that, but no, I don't. Even in Australia, I think that one might have been a school trip as well. But I think I thought we were going to learn something about Einstein, which you will not if you've seen the movie. And then there was a comic retelling of our Ned Kelly myth. That's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it was called Reckless Kelly, and then there was one called Mr. Accident. Um, but Yahoo has kind of slipped away from public consciousness. He certainly has. Most <laughs> most famous in Australia for um, trying to sue the search engine Yahoo. Because he believed they had ripped off his name. <laughs> oh, and he was serious. Yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Joe's here. <laughs> I'm ashamed. <laughs> so what else you got? Uh, okay, so um, I thought I'd talk about a movie uh, that there might, I don't know if people will know this movie or not, but it was made in 2005. It was called Wolf Creek. Captain's log. So far, no sign of intelligent life forms. Wow. That's awesome. Looks like we might be spending the night. What the hell? Just stay in the car! What the bloody hell are you mob doing out here? <laughs> Scared the shit out of me. <laughs> so, um, where did you live? <laughs> oh, I get around here. You know, never know where I might pop up. <laughs> what do you actually do? Oh, I can tell you. But then, I'd have to kill you.
an Australian horror film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no, no, it's um, got a following. Yep. Made by Greg McLean. There's been a bunch of, again, not as successful spin-offs and sequels to the original film. But what was most compelling about this film as Australian was, well, two things. Greg was somebody that I knew, so it was the first person, you know, my age of my friend group who sort of, you know, got their money together and managed to make a film in Australia. It's pretty difficult to actually get to make a film. And I remember the night he showed it to us before it had gone to cinemas and we were just in the living room at a friend's house and there was only four of us there and he said, do you want to watch our movie? And I remember thinking at the time, and I mean, his girlfriend was the lead actress in the movie and like, you know, she's there, he's there. You're like, oh, do I really want to watch their movie? Well, they're here. It's like it's an Australian movie. It's probably not going to be very good. Like, you know, I know what the budget was. And I found it incredibly compelling, partly yeah. because, um, you know, it is a genuinely horrific horror film, but I think to Australians, it, 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 there was a real time and place about it because it, it Crocodile Dundee was definitely, you know, coming to the end of that's what your Australian outback, you know, bloke might come across as like. And then suddenly there was a real danger to the Australian outback. And Mick Taylor, who's the, the kind of lead bad guy in Wolf Creek, um, is very much, there was a, a guy called Ivan Malat who was a serial killer of backpackers and there was a, another murder out up in Darwin as well. There was a couple of people who were living out in the middle of nowhere because the Australian outback really does look like, you know, George Miller's, you know, Fury Road. That's what it's like, you know, pretty dark and dangerous things can happen out there. And suddenly there was this movie franchise that had said, basically said, what if Crocodile Dundee was a serial killer? Mm -hmm. What if instead of being this, you know, sort of charming guy, you know, hypnotizing rhinoceroses, as a as a point in our mythology, it felt like a rejection of, you know, one part of that mythology that had been built up for so many years. It felt like, no, we're going to make about we're we're making a horror movie where Santa is the serial killer. You know, we're going to take this beloved cultural icon and we're going to flip it on its head. And so it's a genuinely, I mean, it's violent. If you're not into violence, it's not a you know, it's a disturbing movie in many ways. But oh, yeah. I think that because there is a reality to at least our, our... In Australia, we look at that character, even though John Jarrett plays it very over the top. But we've seen outback characters like that in Australia. It may feel a little over the top, I think, to other people. And I think the more that he did it, the more it turned into a Freddy Krueger style, you know. But in the first movie, it's genuinely got some, you know, real yeah. terror to it. That's a very effective movie, um, and and free. Yeah, I hadn't even made the connection, the, the crocodile Dundee uh, notion, but yeah, yeah, it 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 works as that, doesn't it? Um, yeah, very dark. <laughs> but and you're gonna tell me he was a comedian too before he? No, although I will <laughs> tell you a good a good uh, comedy filmmaking story. There was a guy in Australia who used to be the, the movie reviewer on the a morning, yeah, kind of kids television music program called Recovery. And he did the movie reviews and then that show went away. And then one day I was in a um, stand-up comedy room in Melbourne and he was doing open mic stand-up comedy. And I was like, oh, poor guy. Like, you know, he used to be quite a big TV star and I've always thought he was super talented. And now he is, you know, kind of you know, a bit older in life and he's starting out doing open mic stand-up comedy and I have a chat to him afterwards and I'm like, what are you up to, mate? You know, what's going on? He goes, oh, me and my mate have just, uh, you know, made a movie. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, all right, great. You know, sure, sure, it'll be great. Sure, it'll be very successful, your movie that you've made with your mate. 
Anyway, that was a guy called Lee Winnell who made Saw, the original Saw <laughs> yes. film. So he and James Wan are now sitting on some pretty incredible Saw money and yes. able, to, able to do whatever it is they, they want to do. And it turns out that much like Eric Banner, he's chosen not to do stand-up comedy. <laughs> It is tough. It is tough. <laughs> uh, yeah, Lee's been on the show. Um, he's, he's wonderful. Good Lord. Yeah, but I mean, made some funny. really fantastic movies lately as well. That's funny. So so what you're saying is your your uh, your debut as a dark vengeance-driven action hero is inevitable, is that? At, yeah, at some stage. Well, so yeah. we, we, we spoke about Chopper, but like, there's another movie that I wanted to talk about, which has got a very anti-hero lead and was a very problematic movie in Australia at the time, which is a movie from 1992 called Romper Stomper. Do you know this oh, film? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, with your beloved Russell. Yeah. Only one movie has been acclaimed as one of the most brilliant, provocative, and truly exciting entertainment experiences since Mad Max and A Clockwork Orange. The movie is called Romper Stomper. This movie is rated R. So Russell Crowe, like, I don't need to go into it and bore Joe to death, but I have a fascination with Russell Crowe, Joe, that started when Russell Crowe was a musician back in New Zealand called Russell Rock with a Q. And... <laughs> I have been obsessed with him ever since. And I saw him come to Australia. And then this was probably the movie where my obsession just took full hold because Russell Crowe's performance as a neo-Nazi skinhead um, at the time, a very, very controversial film. Like we had a huge movie show in Australia where the uh, Margaret, there were Siskel and Ebert, Margaret and David, and they would famously sometimes yeah, very much disagree on on movies and Margaret gave it four and a half stars and David refused to rate it, which at the time was like a national story. Yeah, <laughs> like this movie is so offensive to David Stratton that he's refused to actually even rate it because it was so controversial. And part of the reason that it was so controversial is that it is a story about, you know, neo-Nazis. Um, and people were like, well, hang on, I think there is actually still neo-Nazis. Now, obviously the years between them, we've realized there is no neo-Nazis and it was a lovely fairy tale. Yes. Not something that wasn't real at all, but um, they're just regular Nazis now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, I see. That it's been many years. Well, I mean, I do seem to recall it does. The film does take the position that that these are not good people. That you, uh... yeah. But the problem is, if you, if the lead is so as charismatic yes. as Russell Crowe is in this film, correct? Uh, yeah, you can't help but root for the worst person in the film. Right. You know he's the worst person in the film. You know you know the character isn't meant to be sympathetic, but because Russell is just so compelling every moment that he's on the screen. Like, yeah. you know, it is what, you know, often you can watch things about terrible people and the the person you've cast as that terrible person is so, ter is so good at being that terrible person that you don't care that they're terrible. Now, sometimes that can be the intention, right? Like you're going you're gonna to make the audience sympathise with somebody that they shouldn't ordinarily sympathise with. That's cool if you're doing it on purpose. But I've seen shows ruined by that, you know, where you're not meant to be sympathising with this character as much as you are, but the performance is so compelling that you do. And I think that there's almost an element of that in this performance by Russell Crowe. But he is... 
so I end up, Joe, this is the sad. So, so wife. it wasn't, it wasn't hammer over anvil that did it for you. Because no. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, I know women who saw that movie, uh, which was barely distributed in America. It was like, you know, you could see it in a cinematheque or whatever. Uh, but when they ran out at the American cinematheque, the place was packed and there was not a dry seat in the house. Uh, Russell was a sex symbol for a period of time. And this is one of the things about Russell that is just so compelling. Like he's like, he's a, so such a complex character, like a brilliant actor, wasn't always a brilliant human being. I think he's on a journey to try to become a brilliant human being, has adopted a sense of humor about himself that wasn't previously there, which I think like he now responds on Twitter. It's one of my favorite things is if somebody discovers a performance of his from a movie that didn't do so well and tweets him about it, he just every time retweets it with one heart at a time. And it loses <laughs> me every time. It's his response to things. Like he's, he is very funny. And so my podcast network is actually named after his band. So Tofop, our podcast, is named after Tofog, which was his band, because he had a band called the 30 Odd Foot of Grunts. And when he became a very big movie star, he tried to leverage that into like doing these international tours with 30 odd foot of grunts. And then he decided to change the name from 30 odd foot of grunts to the ordinary fear of God. So they were still called Tofog. So they still had the same <laughs> Tofog merchandise, but another ridiculous name. And yeah, I'm obsessed by Russell, but I think this performance and this movie is really, really compelling and really fantastic yeah. and gave you a real sense of a different Australia. Like it's set in the inner suburbs of Melbourne and, the depiction of if you think that, you know, Crocodile Dundee is what Australia is about, then watch this movie and find out what Australia was about in 1992, which was those same iconic white Australian characters really becoming, you know, very twisted and, and, and you know, anti-heroes rather than heroes of the story. Yeah, I remember being a very, very powerful. And was that, that may have been the first time I saw him in anything was a sort of, I think Probably. that was our introduction to him. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I, I can't, I can't, I certainly don't share the degree of your fascination with him, but I'm, I'm, I'm always there for him. I do. He's, he's so interesting. Although I have not seen the, the, the road rage movie yet. I feel terrible. I, um, what, what's the new one called Joe? Um, uh, I can't remember, but it did very well. The, well, actually, I mean, considering was, the fact that it hardly it was, could play anywhere, I believe it was the only movie in theaters <laughs> that week. That's, uh, but, but yeah, where he uh, where he quote unquote put on an extra you know forty pounds and um, that's the old story. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, it feels yeah. to be <laughs> that's my excuse. Choices. They did I think it if just you were going to try to, if you were going to pitch Russell something at this stage of his career, I would suggest it's something where he has to put on some more weight. <laughs> not, not the opposite direction. <laughs> Exactly. Oh my God, I love the Shane Black film. My God, it wasn't good guys. Uh, yeah, he's he's wonderful. He's marvelous. Well, when he's good, he's great, and he won his Academy yeah. Award for he's like not one of his greats. He's fine in Gladiator. It's a fine film, and he's fine in it. But... No, he's he's on he's on Twitter. You know, he's he's doing. Uh, you know, he has some uh, some videos he does on Twitter. He's starting to look like Oliver Reed. <laughs> yeah, nothing. No, nothing he's starting to look like he ate Oliver Reed. I know. I know. I like to say I put on uh, an extra 15 pounds for this podcast. So. Um, <laughs> you can tell. You can tell by your voice. <laughs> Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. What's next? Um, okay, so uh, another Australian crime movie uh, is a movie from 1999 called Two Hands. I got a new job. And uh, you could say I'm moving on. Yeah, what are you doing? Everyone down in the fucking hold up! I'm, um... Open your drawer! Open your fucking drawer! All of you, open your drawers! I'm working for a guy. Just doing odd jobs here and there. Right. Give me your keys! Go! Go! Was that you on that Banks Down job today? Didn't know you could handle yourself so well. I got a lot of work coming up. I could use another set of hands. Well, I did see a chick called Sharon drop a big pile of cash up. How much? Ten grand. Then you come straight back here, all right? Yeah, no worries. Do you know this film? Do not. No. No, never heard of it? Okay, so it's you know definitely uh, two of, well, you'll probably know a bunch of the actors from it, but it stars as the leads. Uh, it's an early performance by Heath Ledger and uh, an early performance by Rose Byrne. They are the, kind of the two young leads in it. And then Brian Brown is your sort of older oh. as well. And, but it has a whole bunch of great Australian actors in it, like Susie Porter and um, uh, David Field and all that. It's like, you know, incredibly you know, talented Australian character actors. This is, this is like one of those little hidden gems. It's just a really simple set in Sydney, set in King's Cross, around the crime world. Heath Ledger's a young guy trying to get involved in the crime world. Um, you've got, you know, uh, Pando, which is Brian Brown's character, who's sort of the, you know, the the Australian-style mob boss and very in Australia. This is a very Australian film. This is what Australian crime was like. It's it's very funny. Like, it's a it's a crime drama, but because, you know, there's, there is a scene where they plan a bank robbery, which I won't spoil, but I do highly recommend people see this film if you want to see, yeah, a young Heath Ledger and a young Rose Byrne put in these incredible performances. Um, made by a guy called Gregor Jordan, might have been his first film even, or like first or second film. He went on to make a bunch of other things that weren't quite as good as this, but it's it's got one little thing in it. There's a, a, a ghost of a brother that, you know, like one of those things where you're just like, I wish somebody in your group had been good enough to go, you just don't need the ghost. The rest of the film's so good, you just <laughs> probably don't need the ghost. You can just lose the ghost. <laughs> um, but... Uh, other than that, it really is like a, a, a very modest little but perfect crime drama, relationship drama about this very compelling guy, Heath Ledger, who's trying to get involved in the crime world and the mistakes he makes along the way. And then this very modest and stilted, you know, romance that grows between he and Rose Byrne. But it's a very, very funny and very, very compelling film. Oh, great. I, I, I love Brian. Brian Brown was in uh, my first very, very, very terrible movie, and he was he was uh, just lovely, lovely, lovely. I just loved him to death. I would willing to forgive him for having been in that piece of shit. But Brian <laughs> Brown, uh, once a very iconic Australian person, obviously Brian Brown, and uh, once on radio, I tried to convince Brian Brown, who up until that point had been a very good sport that um, I was going to lobby the paint company Dulux 
to release a shade of paint called Brian Brown. And I wanted them to develop a specific brown that would be called Brian Brown and that people could paint their house Brian Brown. I thought it would be iconically Australian. If you're like, you know, welcome to my, yeah, welcome to my games room. It's Brian Brown. And he did not get on board that idea at all. <laughs> I was not amused by me. Did not think that was funny. Could not have oh, shut it down quicker. Oh, but, I'm very sorry to hear that. Uh, I'll tell you my anecdote that I teased a little earlier about, uh, I'll tell you the way that I remember it. I have since heard the audio of it and it's not, it is very similar to, but not exactly as I will tell you. Uh, Heath Ledger, I think, um, I think one of the most compelling performances ever in a movie is him playing the Joker in The Dark Knight. I love The Dark Knight. I, it's To me, like that's my favourite comic book movie of all time, but Heath Ledger's performance in that is just, you know, it's extraordinary and you know i feel like the world was really robbed of you know what it is that he was going to be able to do because he's an incredible talent but so he made two hands he's made it with roseburn i i really had like a big crush on roseburn back at that day you know around the same age you know like see her occasionally at a party or whatever thought of roseburn you know just like i had a massive crush on her you know he's ledger's been in this movie with the roseburn then he does this other movie with um, uh, Gregor Jordan, which was called, uh, it was called Kelly or Ned. Ned Kelly. There's been a bunch of reimaginings mm. of the Ned Kelly story. If people don't know, Ned Kelly's Australia's most famous sort of bush ranger, which was like a criminal, like our versions of like, you know, that, that mythos, our Billy the Kid or whatever. And right. he used to wear a giant metal helmet on his head, like a giant sort of kind of stove style you know, how kind of like the Black Knight in Monty Python. Right. And he yes. wore that seriously. It's iconically Australian. And Heath Ledger was playing young Ned Kelly in this movie about Ned Kelly. And they came in to promote the movie on the radio show that I was doing. Now, look, it was 7.30 in the morning, but Heath didn't have a reputation at the time for being great radio talent. And on this morning, he, he, he looked like he'd been kidnapped to get him there in the studio. <laughs> And so we're just trying to promote the film, but I'm just trying to make it funny. We're, do, we, we're doing like a show where it's meant to be funny. We're on this like national youth broadcaster network. We do a funny show like, and you know, we're not a commercial radio show. We don't you know, have to do wacky things. We can actually just talk about something serious or interesting. It doesn't matter, but he's just giving us nothing. And so I asked this question, which in retrospect, I look, I, he, cause he says, I just wanted to know why Ned Kelly was so, so dark, so tormented, why he was angry all the time. And I said, do you think it was because he always had really bad hat hair? Now, I understand that if you've made this big, serious movie, That's that, that might, might seem dumb and dismissive, but he just said to me, he goes, well, that's not funny, is it? And I say, well, I didn't say 10, I, I didn't say 10 things I hate about you twice, dickhead. Now, that's how I remember it. It turns out someone sent me the audio recording. I did not say dickhead. I've added the dickhead <laughs> once he was out of the room as I've told that story. But I had had a little feud with Heath Ledger until I saw him in The Dark Knight and just thought, I, I was one of those people who was like, he's not a great actor. He's doing all these teen comedies. Like everyone's trying to make Heath Ledger happen. And then I saw him in The, the Dark Knight and he was just, you know, uh, transformative. But his performance in two hands is is also just if you want to see an actor arrive on the scene and people go because people had heard about Heath Ledger at that point 
And he, then he comes and does this performance in two hands and everyone's like, okay, he's here now. Yeah, he's, um, yeah, I, I got to know him pretty well during uh, uh, the, the, my whole flirtation with the Oscar thing because we were both both up for, you know, this whole circuit of awards that you're up for. And it became this running joke that I would, I would get to these things early so I could grab a seat at the bar beforehand. And uh, I can't remember at the first, it was at the Golden Globes. I met him there and we would just, it became this running gag where we would just meet at the bar before all these things. And and uh, got to hang out with him a bit outside of that. And just, yeah, love, lovely guy. I still, I'm absolutely certain I had no impact on this, but you can't help but think about these things. I remember literally the last time I saw him, he was going off to do Batman and he was feeling incredibly conflicted about it. He just thought he'd taken this dopey movie and it's, no, it's not serious. It's not what you want to do as an actor. And I had just done a 10 minute Batman cartoon that I had written. That was just some of the most fun I had ever had as a writer. It was just completely liberating, goofy, and dopey. And I just gave him this big pitch for just, sometimes you got to do stuff. that's just dumb fun. And then he was like, yeah, okay, I guess so. I guess so. I guess so. I'm sure he was already committed to the film. I'm sure he would have done it no matter what I said, but there's still that thing of like the last time I saw the guy, I, I was talking him into going off to do the movie that killed him. So it's a little, uh, <laughs> that's how I tell it. Whether it's true or not. That's your, that's your version of me adding dickhead at the end. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jesus. But yeah, such a nice guy. God. Uh, um, all right. Uh, I, I, I know that you're probably running out of time, so I'll, no. I'll uh, get you through. Um, so this one, uh, we don't have to talk about a lot, but it's just a, a recommendation. Again, I love, I love in Australia, you don't get an opportunity to make big budget movies much anymore. So occasionally when somebody just makes something and they come out of nowhere and they just manage to make a film that works, even if it is very modest, I have great admiration for that. One of my you know, favorite New Zealand films is um, yeah the original what we do what we do in the shadows. Oh. So, you know the the Jermaine Clement uh, Taika Waititi movie. Let's go, let's go. It's been like this the whole time. Deacon on dishes and it still hasn't moved in five years. You're a cool guy, but you're not pulling your weight in the flat. Oh, I'm glad to hear that I'm cool. No, that's not the point, though. Yeah, no, I know. Not that I know. flat meeting about how cool you are. When you get three vampires in a flat, obviously there's going to be a lot of tension. <laughs> um, you know, the, the spin-offs, the, those series, I think, have really been excellent. But the original movie is excellent. Yeah. And it, it's very much a version of people just going, well, we don't have a huge budget, but we've got an idea, and I think that we can make this idea into something that is compelling. There is an Australian movie called Kenny. Have either of you ever heard of Kenny? I it takes a certain kind of person to, to do what I do, and it's just about having a thick skin. No one's ever impressed. No one's ever fascinated with what you do. Are you doing your job here? What's, what's going on? We are. You have to have that paper. Do you understand? We do, mate. I'm sorry. There is a smell in here that is going to outlast religion. So I don't do it for the glory. I don't do it to impress people. What's the job? Look at that, eh? What kind of curry is that bloke been eating? Feels vaguely. Is it? Is he sort of like a? No, I guess I'm never mind. I'm thinking of mice and men. Somehow I'm confusing him with letters. <laughs> Kenny or Lenny? Well, there is a simplicity to him, That's oddly right. enough. So if you saw this movie, and I sometimes I hate even telling people it's a movie because I think the best way to watch the movie is to think it's a documentary. 
Like, I honestly think, because that's the great appeal of this. It is a story about a very humble um, uh, sanitation uh, guy. So a guy who works cleaning out toilets, you know, goes to festival events and, you know, takes the portable toilets, bathrooms away, you know, like this is, so it is a movie about a guy made by a guy called Shane Jacobson, who's now a well-known Australian based on this, but beforehand was not a well-known person at all. And it is made with members of his own family, you know, as actors. So the performances in it and shot at real locations, you know, they just did that thing where they, you know, wrote a script around, you know, shooting at it, real things that were happening, you know, getting involved with a real toilet company, going backstage at the festivals and shooting stuff around, you know, people just going to the toilet at a festival. So it is very hard to know when you are watching it, whether you are watching a scripted movie or you're just watching one of those sort of documentary style movies about a real person. It is hilariously funny. It is not necessarily highbrow humour, but it is much smarter than a movie about a guy who empties out toilets needs to be. <laughs> and it is played the, the lead title character, Kenny, who is the hero of the film. And it's a star vehicle, really. You know, the, 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 reason, the reason this movie works is you believe this character to be a real charming, beautiful person. But it's... You know, you don't need high expectations, but if you want to watch something that really feels like you don't know if it's a documentary or if it's a, a real movie, and then later to find out that it is a real movie, admire the fact that they did such a good job of just never... Like, I mean, it's hard to watch a Borat film without constantly watching it and saying, which bits are set up? Yeah, which bits yeah. Are, and this is not a prank film, Kenny, but you just don't know who's real, who's acting, what parts of it in me him interacting with real people. It's, 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 it's excellent. I really, yeah, I just looked it up and I thought I realized I did the, the poster is somehow iconic enough that it had, um, if you can see that there, that mm -hmm. I, I remember the poster and it does have a great tagline. Do you know the tagline at least over here? Oh no, I bet it's some bad poo joke though, right? He's number one with your number two. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I love that someone got paid to come up with it. <laughs> uh, all right. So that's probably all you need on Kenny. So I've got two more to finish up. And these are sort yes. of older. So these are films from sort of when I first started watching movies. You know, like, yeah, kid growing up in the country, um, I would have been, you know, sort of, I guess, six or seven. You know, you start to get to that point where your parents start to let you maybe at least be in the room for some adult style movies. And particularly if they have some educational factor to them. So both of these movies are based on uh, true Australian stories. And uh, the first one is a movie from 1981 called Gallipoli. Do you know oh, that yeah. movie? Oh, oh for sure. Yeah. It was, yeah. A, big, it was yeah. A, a modest art house hit here. From a place you never heard of comes a story you'll never forget. Mel Gibson and uh, who's the and other that's actor? One of the pictures that put Mel over the top, much more yeah. so than Mad Max, because Mad Max hadn't, uh, you know, done anything. Yeah. Oh, well, it, incredible performance by Mel Gibson, and like Peter Weir directed it. Uh, people might not know that, but Peter Weir obviously, you know, had a pretty, you know, decent career, you know, internationally directing movies as well. But um, 
it's a really beautifully directed movie. It is tells the story of a, an Australia again. These are, you know, the stories that we would see. And basically the only stories that would get particular budget. Yeah, the Anzac myth. So if people don't know what Gallipoli is, it's a, you know, there was a, a battle at Anzac Cove during the, the war and uh, it's this iconically Australian moment. It is our sort of, you know, what we remember and we have a day off for it and stuff in Australia and it's our symbol of, you know, military stories in Australia. It's called, you know, Gallipoli. And we have Anzac Day and we celebrate sort of and remember, you know, in that day. But the funny thing about it is that it's not a victory. It's an incredibly right. bad loss. The Australians were sent to the wrong place by the British and they were essentially massacred in the name of distraction. And that is what this movie is about. So it's not a, it's a glory, it's certainly not a glorification of war. Even back in 1981, there was a real sense. Yeah, so Mel Gibson's character in this film is a, you know, champion runner. You know, there's the, the really kind of iconic, you know, dialogue, you know, what are your legs, steel springs? What are they going to do? Hurl me down the track. You know, oh, that, right. that became yes. part of the Australian lexicon out of this film. But it was a real film about showing that the boys who got sent away to war were, um, you know, these the best of us and that a whole generation was robbed because these people got sent away and often they were sent away to, you know, fight to be cannon fodder on, on a beach in Gallipoli. So it's it's a really compelling movie. Like it's it's fun, like which is a weird thing to say about a movie, you know, about a war, but they have great fun with setting up the characters, you know, setting up the the narrative in the in the first place before it gets to the fact that, you know, the brutal and it is, and without wanting to give it away, it's doesn't have much of a happy ending. I mean, it's based yeah. on a true story. You can read a history book and realize it doesn't have a happy ending, but the movie doesn't have much of a happy ending either. And to so you know, to be seven, maybe eight years old or whatever when I first saw the. Oh wow! Yeah, that would yeah, pretty pretty mind blowing on a whole bunch of different. Sure, levels. sure, sure. That's a terrific film. Um, and so yeah, my final film is a movie called Farlap. He's not any other horse. He's a freak. He came from nowhere, a long shot. He's a bit skinny, isn't he, Harry? Well, you don't buy horses just for their looks. A misfit. This is not a horse, Harry. This is a cross between a sheepdog and a kangaroo. A total unknown. You got a real go this time, Harry. <laughs> Harry knows his bloodlines. His trainer pushed him to the limit. Don't you care what happens to him? You'll kill him. Nothing's going to happen to him. His owner wouldn't give him a chance. Sell him for the best price you can get. But because one young man cared enough. Get up. Come on. Knew enough. I want to try something different this morning, Cashy. And believed enough. If I can get him 90% fit, his heart will get him to the line. And he became a world champion. Yes! When the competition learned he couldn't be beaten, they knew he had to be stopped. You'd be surprised what people will do if they stand to lose a million pounds, Harry. I want to hurt a champion like Farlap. You're putting his whole future at risk. Have you seen this film? Farlap, of course, yes. Oh, Farlap. I thought he said yeah. Fowlap. It's that damned accent. It is. Yes. Farlap. P-H-A-R-L-A-P. Farlap. Uh, 1983. Um... Uh, I don't people it's a movie about a horse a yes. uh, very very famous horse in Australia and under this is your classic underdog horse you know a horse that was 
you know, it was during, you know, the darkest times in Australia, this was the horse that brought Australia together. And it was this underdog, rejected, undersized horse from New Zealand, the original Russell Crowe, the original New Zealander that we adopted as an honorary Australian. And it had a streak of wins for a period of time in Australia that was, you know, unsurpassed, became a, a cultural legend in Australia. And in 1983, they made a movie um, about Farlap, but it is an excellent film. Like it's a, yeah. like, you know, if you, if you like Seabiscuit, see Farlap is what I would say. I'd argue the superior film, Farlap. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's wonderful stuff. Uh, are you, have you, um, uh, this is an excuse to bring up a movie that I'm, I'm overly in love with for various reasons, but uh, the, the film The Dish with Sam Neill is that. Um, okay, so great. Okay, here we go. Oh, okay. Question, Josh. Well done. <laughs> so, the dish was made by the people who made the castle. Oh, so, really? Oh, So wow. that working dog team. Yes. So their first movie was the castle, and their second movie was the dish. I, oh. I, uh, the dish was the first movie I saw. I don't think I've told this story here. I'll, I'll, I'll keep it brief for you. But I, oh, you was, have. It's okay. You can cut that. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Have I really? Because people, uh, people aren't going to be expected to go back to episode three to hear your story about the dish. No, I just it, it was the it was the first movie I saw after 9-11, which uh, I don't know what it was like down there in Australia. If you guys remember, uh, there was a thing that happened in New York and on September 11th, uh, and we were all you know, um, and it was the first movie I watched. And there was something about it. I mean, it's a slight film, but it's really charming and really funny and really warm. And there was something about watching a movie where the entire world came together to look at something wonderful that was just it was it was a tonic i don't like that but it was just it it sort of reaffirmed my faith in humanity and kind of brought me back in a way that um you know it's just we were all just kind of lost after that everyone was just like ah. and and it just it it uh, it just filled refilled me with kind of human joy again and i remember seeing was at some event or other and sam neil was there and i Came up to him and I said, "Look, I I hope this doesn't sound weird. I'm not some weird stalker. I'm a you know I, I work in this business, but I, I saw the dish after 9/11 and and I really want to hug you, but I'm not going to." And Sam went, "I get that a lot." <laughs> I mean, I think Sam Neil probably gets that a lot in general. In general, yeah, I think so. Yeah, but I yeah. So well, if you great, if you love the dish, then go and watch the castle. I yes, think you'll, yes, I think I it's, it's fair to say that you will love the castle also uh, because fantastic. very much made by the same people, same sensibility. If people don't know the dish, like based on a true story about yeah. the, the the satellite going through parks in Australia uh, for the for the moon landing, was the moon landing? Yeah, yeah. 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 And for so, a brief few moments, yeah. the Australians have to carry the satellite signal for the entire world, and it's an enormous amount of pressure on these. Um, yeah. Oh, great. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah, it's a, it's a great film. And it, like, it's funny when I was, you know, talking about the castle, I was like, oh, well, I won't say the dish because, you know, I've already talked about the working dog guys. But uh, yeah, um, yeah, also an excellent film. It is, it is fantastic. Uh, well, Will, thank you, man. Thank this, you this so was, much. This was great. I really felt, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad because you did. And there's a lot of us. movies that you mentioned that our general uh, run of audience are probably unfamiliar with, which yeah. is one of the reasons we do this. Yeah, I did. Why I do? I was like, hey, oh God, the poor guys—they're not going to have heard of any of these films. No, 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 I'm it's great. But... It's fantastic. It is fantastic, and all of them. I was checking as you were talking; they're all that you can find them all pretty easily here. So, um, uh, worth looking out for. Um, and I'm definitely, I'm definitely going to go see that one uh, uh, from the Dish guys.
is, uh, I just, I love that film. Um, Will, thank you so much. The, uh, uh, Jesus, I mean, Tofop, Fofop, uh, Two Guys, One Cup, which is about football, not American football. Yeah. So nobody cares. Um, <laughs> you know what? It's not even a really about Australian football. We it's, have lots of international listeners who don't really care about football. Just go to tofop.com, T-O-F-O-P.com. They're all there. Philosophy. Uh, they're all there. Yes. Uh, well, thank you very much for joining us. This was great. Um, appreciate you taking the time in the middle of your day. And uh, Joe, do, do, you think, do we think the, <laughs> we think the Super Bowl is over? Do we want to take bets on uh, who won the Super Bowl? Because actually, Joe, do you know who was playing in the Super Bowl today? Uh, I know who was playing. Okay, you're one up on me. I, I um, have no clue. It's still on. It's still on. <laughs> it's, it never is. It's never fucking over. It goes no, on forever. It's, but so many people. So many people gain so much pleasure yeah, from watching right. these guys beat each other uh, to death. So it's fine. It's like it's, boxing, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> makes them happy, keeps them off the street. Yes, okay. I would much rather it's, be doing this. <laughs> it's Thunderdome. Exactly. It is. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much, man. Take care. Hey, it's Josh with a quick follow-up. Uh, I just want to tell you, since we recorded this on Will's recommendation, I have watched The Castle. It is not just a wonderful film. You will not be uh, lost with its cultural references. It's very translatable uh, and a really, really entertaining movie. We'll see you next week. Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the Movies That Made Me. Stay safe out there, folks. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.